Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, Managing Editor of Velo News, joined by Mr. Functionality himself, Coach Trevor Connor. We like to ride bikes because many things. We love being out on the road or the trail. We love performing. We love the thrill. It's the part of the meal we look forward to. The vegetables? That's the functional work we know we need but tend to push to the side of the plate. It's the strength work, conditioning, core, stretching, foam rolling, and PT that we so often ignore. But if you want to be at your strongest, and more importantly, if you want to do this for a long time, this is the work you can't skip. Whether you're 21 or 51, it's going to come back to haunt you, as Trevor and our guest today will testify to. So today, we'll take a deep dive into functional training, literally. Trevor and I, at different times in this episode, will get down on the floor of the studio to do some exercises. We live all in the name of getting this important message across. So today, we'll cover, first, what exactly is functional training? and why this buzz phrase is often misunderstood and why cycling seems to be way behind the curve. Second, the two main benefits of functional work, improving your neuromuscular performance on the bike and preventing injury. Three, why functional training and staying healthy aren't simply a matter of stretching or picking up the periodic heavy weight. Proper movement and form are key. Number four, that's when Trevor and I will get on the floor and embarrass ourselves for a bit. Stay tuned for that. Number five, we discuss next how to evaluate functional fitness and why you should consider having the help of an expert. Number six, the importance of belly breathing. What the heck is that? Number seven, how cyclists can succumb to the pitfall of less than optimal firing patterns and not even know it. And finally, Menachem Brody, our guest today, walks through six key exercises for cyclists. If there's one thing we hope you get from this episode, it's to do these exercises several times per week. To help you out, we've posted the list on the Velo News website. So today, our primary guest is the aforementioned Menachem Brody, head coach at Human Vortex Training and the USA Cycling Expert Coach. That is among his many credentials. If you're listening to this podcast in early March, Menachem is doing an online webinar through USA Cycling on designing annual strength programs. It runs March 18 through 21. Along with Menachem, we spoke with World Tour riders Joe Dombrowski of EF Education First and Brent Bookwalter, who rides for Mitchelton Scott. Both riders emphasize the importance of functional work, even if it means spending an hour less on the bike. We also connected with Jess Elliott, the owner of TAG Performance Strength and Conditioning. She talked with us about how easy it is for athletes to fall into poor muscling firing patterns. So sit up straight, flex those internal obliques. Let's make it fast. This episode of the Fast Talk podcast is sponsored by Oatroot. What is Oatroot? Well, it's not a cycling tour and it's more than a road race. It's a multi-day Grand Fondo style event where everyone starts together each morning and you can ride with friends all day. You can indulge your competitive side on timed sections if you feel like it and explore iconic cycling destinations around the world. Oatroot takes service to the next level with Pro Tour style support on the bike and rider focused amenities off it. Choose from a dozen events 
in 2019 in France, Italy, Norway, Oman, Mexico, and China. In the United States, there are still entries available for Oat Route Asheville in May, which I will be attending, and Oat Route San Francisco in September. Try something new in 2019. Try Oat Route. Well, we're glad to have Menachem Brody join us today. Welcome to Fast Talk, Menachem. Thanks for having me, guys. Really excited to be here. And you are sitting in Tel Aviv, is that correct? Yes, it is. And you're laying in bed because you have an injury, is that also correct? It is. My intern accidentally uh, <laughs> kneed me in the back of the, the hip, my injured hip, while I was holding the scooter up for him to get onto the sessions last night. So I've been laid up in bed all day. Well, I, I bring that up because I think that relates to your background and how you've come to be an expert on the subject of today's podcast. So perhaps we take a step back or you take a step back and lead us on your your journey to where we are now in terms of your uh, professional experience. Yeah. And, you know, now that you mentioned it, it's kind of funny how it all comes full circle. You know, you don't expect it to, but uh, just with the injury waking up this morning and I, I looked at my wife, I'm like, oh, this isn't good. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the universe kind of guides you where you need to go because it allowed me to dig up some old notebooks that I have and mine them. But that's kind of been my my journey, like you mentioned, to where we are today is my my path athletically has not riddled with injuries, but I've had a couple big injuries at tantamount points. Uh, I wound up having surgery after I tried and failed the second time to walk onto the University of Pittsburgh uh, men's basketball team. This was when they were good. They were, you know, number 17 or 18 in the nation under Ben Hallett. So, yeah, you know, a six foot two kid who can't really jump from Squirrel Hill is going to make the team. So I wound up being asked to join the team as a manager. And it was during that time that I got into coaching, cycling. I was looking for another sport. Pretty much, uh, I picked up biking as a way to get away from basketball because uh, my trend is that whatever I do, I love. I, I always do something I'm passionate about. So working at the division one level, top 25 team as a manager, uh, doing the extra work nobody wants to do, but I loved it. You know, working 80 hours a week, I needed something else outside of basketball. And that's when I started riding a bike. But essentially, I asked the coach of the cycling club for a training plan for half a year, and he just kept putting me off. And then he finally sent me one out of a book that I had read. And I'm like, okay, this this sucks. And I uh, decided, you know what? I'm going to be a coach. And that was the beginning of it. I was an exercise physiology major with a specialization in coaching. I'm like, I can do this. This is what I'm going for. So let's add cycling. And that has become pretty much my uh, my full-time job. But that, that's pretty much the start. And the second injury was... um I decided in my fourth year of coaching that I was actually going to start taking it seriously. And I'm like, you know what? I need to train myself. If I want to be able to help athletes, I don't have to be able to do it well, but I need to be able to do it good to show. That season, I got myself up. I finished 11th in a 3-4 race uh, as a Category 4. I mean, it's Pittsburgh. It's not super serious. Uh, but that was after I didn't know where the finish line was. So none of my athletes make that mistake. <laughs> You and, did that uh, too. I've done the, I did that my very first race ever. Mostly because a guy in the race told me the finish line was 500 meters before it was. So I absolutely sprinted my brain out and blew up 500 <laughs> meters before the finish line. Then he biked by, by me laughing. <laughs> Almost the same actually for me. One of the guys behind me was like, go, go, go. And I'm like, there was two little chicanes and I thought it was the first one because he's telling me to go and I thought it was my teammate. And I had to ramp it back up. Uh, that was frustrating. I was like, yes. And I come around the corner, I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I got to that point And just one day, I was out for a long ride. And exactly the halfway point away from home, it felt like someone took a flamethrower, a sharp knife, and dug it into my hip. I wound up one leg pedaling two and a half hours home. 
because I couldn't clip in my left foot. And uh, that was the beginning of the end of my racing career, but the beginning of a very fruitful, uh, th- thus far at least, uh, strength training. And that was the beginning of going from an average personal trainer and strength coach to being where I am today. It was just, how do I fix myself and what are how do I help my athletes not have that issue? That kind of gets us into today's topic, which is this concept of, of functional training. And I should mention, so you and I met this fall at the uh, USAC coaching conference in Colorado Springs, which going to quickly say that was a great experience for any coaches out there listening to this. If you have the opportunity to go to it, I highly recommend it. And you gave a, a fantastic talk there. And a lot of people came in to watch it. One of the things I noticed was you seem to be opening a lot of eyes, that there were a lot of people who really hadn't thought about the need of this off-the-bike functional work for cycling and the importance of it. And is that I'm sure that's that's something that since you're now going around lecturing on this, since you're talking with people on this, I'm sure that's something you've seen a lot. Yeah, immensely so. And that was a fantastic, that's honestly one of the best conferences I've been to, and I've been to, to quite a few. Um, USA Cycling's did a fantastic job of really making sure that it's well-rounded. We had the Art of Breath. Mackenzie was there, and, and you know, so many different people. It was, it was a great event as a whole. But it's also, we have things like the Art of Breath. I've been coaching that for the last four years uh, because that was something I was seeing in, in most of my 50-plus-year-old clients was diastasis and poor breathing patterns. But there's a, a lot inside of strength training that as cycling as a whole, we're so far behind the best practices. Like, you know, it's we're in the 1970s and, and everybody else is in the 1990s. Let's be honest, uh, except for a couple, uh, you know, people in the professional levels. Do you recognize the name uh, Harvey Newton? I don't, no. Chris, how about you? No, I don't. Harvey was really the first person in cycling to to take the uh, to be the town crier and, and teach people strength training. And this is back in the 1980s. Uh, so Harvey's uh, a fantastic, knowledgeable coach. I've spoken to him uh, two or three times here, and he was trying to teach, and it just people weren't ready yet, and he recognized that. And what's happened with cycling is I, I honestly think we, we all make fun of uh, triathletes, but I honestly think triathletes are responsible for us making that step forward in strength training. Uh, that in cyclocross. The reason is a lot of us start, as Americans, we think of strength training as bodybuilding exercises. And what this goes back to is what happened in the 1970s. So in Russia, you essentially have the Eastern Bloc approach where they're doing Olympic lifts with kids, with, with wooden dowels, mind you. But they're learning these complex movements at young ages. They're learning how to do uh, calisthenics. They're outdoors. They're doing gymnastic-style things. Whereas here in the States, we were guided by Dr. Cooper, and we all know the Cooper Run Test. So what happened is the U.S. kind of split ways. And the guys in the United States that were doing strength training tended to be Arnold, Bill Blankfield, uh, all these big guys. And that's still very ingrained in the American thought of what strength training is. But if you actually take a step back and look at every other sport, they're all doing the, or mostly doing the Olympic lifts or parts of the Olympic lifts in some form throughout the season because of what it brings to the table as far as the neuromuscular response. And that's something that we as cyclists, I think, kind of, 
don't re- recognize as much because we're thinking, oh, we're on a bike. It's a simple movement. You know, it's a circular movement. We're locked in on a crank. So all I have to do is be able to pedal my bike. Uh, and really, there's so much more that goes into allowing the nervous system, the neuro- neuromuscular system to progress. Uh, and that's the fourth pillar of how we actually progress as athletes. You have hormonal, neuromuscular, cardiorespiratory, and metabolic. But the neuromuscular, we just think, oh, I'll do a couple fast pedals or stomps and I'm okay. Uh, but it goes far beyond that. And I'm also going to add to that, yes, it is a simple motion, and we're really just doing one motion on the bike. And that has some dangers in that it can really lead to imbalances, unlike other sports where you have multiple different types of motions and you're using all different muscles. Cycling tends to really build some chains while really not touching others. And if all you ever do is ride the bike, that's going to lead to huge neuromuscular imbalances that can cause injury and ultimately affect you on the bike as well. Mm-hmm. Spot on. Maybe we should take a step back. Let's really go high level here and just say, what exactly is functional training? So excellent question. Functional training is 100% a buzz topic word or a buzzword, if you will. Kind of like, I don't know, paleo diet or keto is. It's the same thing. And, and Oh, really, boy. You, you're really picking a fight with me now. Huh? <laughs> Everything works. I've got somebody on intermittent. Fa- it all depends on what your goals outside of cycling are. And that's really what functional training should be. Functional training in the best practice of it should be allowing you to go out and do the sport or the tasks that you want at a high level while keeping you balanced so that you're able to perform for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So sorry, cyclist, I know it looks really freaking cool, but getting on a stability ball and doing barbell back squats is not functional unless you're in Cirque du Soleil, in which case, totally cool. Can we please have three free tickets for the three of us? (laughs) (laughs) But we have to think and we have to look at, at ourselves and our athletes Most of us are professional at something else and are serious about our cycling. We're sitting at desks. We're we're doing other stuff 40 to 50 hours a week, but we elect to get on our bike and to perform. So our functional training as amateurs is going to be very different at a certain point than those that are professional. You know, 20 years ago, even 10 years, if you will, the worst or number one injury for a cyclist was knees. And that was because we were just getting on these steel frame bikes without a, a concept of what a real bike fit was or what it should do. Uh, and now we have all these different cleats. And, and you guys talked about this with Dr. Andy Pruitt. Now it's back pain. And that makes total sense. You know, if we want to go down that rabbit hole, we can. But there's so much more to it. And, and the bottom line is for the average cyclist, uh, for those of you that are listening to this, uh, you know, Chris Room, of course, hi, how you doing? Uh, again, three tickets, Tour de France, please, for the three of us. <laughs> We're, hey, you gotta do the plug when you can, right? <laughs> if you don't ask, you never know. For most of us, we just have to think about how to balance and how to get back towards baseline. Yeah, it's really awesome to be super aero, but you don't want to be, you know, 45 and you look super aero on the bike and then you go to stand up and the kids are running away like, it's not Halloween yet, the hatchback is coming. Um, <laughs> so we have to find that balance. To, to share a little bit of personal experience here, because I've had a bad back since I was 16 and it, at points in my life, it has been debilitating. I was fortunate that in 2014 or 2004, when I started working with my old coach, Hussein Amiri, he was huge on functional training and had us doing it all the time. And I basically went from 2004 to around 2013, 2014 with no back pain because of, of everything that he taught me about the importance of this functional side. And I admit in 2015, 2016, I got really busy. I didn't have as much time. I, I slipped into that mindset I told none of my athletes to slip into of I have limited time, so spend it all on the bike. I stopped doing my functional training. 
in 2016 and most of 2017, my back bothered me every single time I got on the bike. And that then led to poor performance on the bike. Your experience, but one of my big experiences when I work with athletes and talk about functional trainers, I always get the question, well, how is this going to improve my performance? Mm -hmm. And you can't necessarily draw a direct line saying you do these exercises, you're going to be stronger on the bike. It's more that argument that if you are functional and injury-free, that's going to allow you to train better. That's going to keep you healthier on the bike. That's ultimately going to allow to better performance versus what I experienced, which was my back started bothering me. Then I couldn't train. Then I got slow on the bike. And those were the first couple of years where I actually felt old. Yeah. And, and you hit it on the head. It is, it was important to you because your coach helped you realize the importance of it and you knew it was important, but let's be honest with ourselves. We love being on the bike. Like we don't want to stay home with a kettlebell for, or come home and then pick up a kettlebell for 15 minutes because we love the feeling of being out on the road, of, of conquering something in front of us. You know, Strava was, was, you know, the bane of my existence as a coach, I'm sure with you as well, the first couple of years until we realized how to, how to build it in. You did what? Yeah, I got the KOM by a minute. That was your peak performance. Why would you do that? Yes. <laughs> I didn't do any of my interval work this week, but look at this KOM I got. Isn't that great? <laughs> Nobody's going to get it for like a year. Yes. Uh, so let me know how it goes this weekend. <laughs> That's what we need, actually, Connor. We need a, a we need a, a Strava for strength training for endurance athletes. <laughs> you did how many oh, kettlebell swings? <laughs> it, it makes sense, and a lot of it is the body's also going to adapt to what we do most of the time. So if we're on a bike and we're pushing ourselves, our body instinctually, if we want to talk about the lizard brain, as is popular, uh, that's the, the buzz phrase. Man, we're just loading up on buzz phrases today. Keto yeah. and. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it really is fight or flight, right? So our body is going to adapt to whatever we ask it to do. Uh, and this is where if we're smart, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the challenge is for us to make that connection and make it important enough for us for the 10 minutes you get back off the, off the bike, go through extension exercises, go through your posture exercises and practice deep breathing to get the ribs and spine to move again. But we have to make it a habit. Uh, and there's uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg is a fantastic book. Uh, he talks about why, uh, I can't remember if it was Bush or, or Obama. Maybe he changes it every four years, whoever's in, I don't know. One of the presidents doesn't choose his shirts. He only has two choices and he lets somebody else choose. It's either a, a red tie or a blue tie. That's it. He doesn't, he doesn't make any choices up until he sits down in his chair because there's something called decision fatigue. So for your coach, Connor, it sounds like he made it so you didn't even have to think about it. I'm going to get off the bike and this is what I have to do. Yep. It is part of my workout. It is written down. Um, but we all do it. We all get away from our core exercises and core is another trendy thing. Don't, uh, we, we can go down that rabbit hole as well, but it really is a matter of it's not a, it's not needed until it's needed kind of thing. And especially with cyclists in their, their late teens to, to mid twenties. I mean, we see the compressive load a spine can handle, uh, male to male and female to female from 20 to 60. A 60 year old can handle I think it's a third less of compressive force. And you think about the miles on the bike. We know that there's tissue creep, which is where the tissues kind of elongate, like that Laffy Taffy, the delicious Laffy Taffy we talked about earlier. Uh, and it kind of creeps. And then you also have, over time, we know that being in a flexed position, like driving a car, driving a truck, not healthy for your back because you're in a flexed forward position at a little bit more than 90 degrees. Now we're going to take a cyclist and we're going to rotate them even more. We want to be about 45 degrees. So now we have a second risk factor. So we have that position, which is leading to creep. We have 
ourselves flexed forward, and then we're taking minor vibrations through the saddle, and that's a third. And that, over time, causes the tissues to slowly kind of reach a failing point. And until your mid-30s, like, we see the onset of back pain for most cyclists who haven't had a massive trauma uh, occur around the fifth to seventh year, or for a lot of us cyclists, it's going to be, what, 32, 34 and it's, oh, it's just a rite of passage. You just have to deal with it. It'll, it'll, it'll pass through. Get a, get a bike fit and you'll fix it. Which leads us to the next part, which you guys, uh, spoke with, about with Dr. Pruitt, which was great. How often do you actually get your bike fit changed? And that should be throughout the year. It should be, you know, you bring the stem down as you gain that flexibility in that position. You find that balance. You're able to activate your glutes. You're able to get good breathing patterns with rib cage and back body expansion. You feel the power, you feel good in that position, you drop down, and then the end of the season, September, October, you bring it back up. And most of us don't even do that. Like, ah, I want to get as low an arrow as I can. And year after year, it leads just to all these negative accumulations. I'll just quickly add to that, as somebody with a back problem, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make is... They have their back is bothering them. They have tight muscles, so they think I need to stretch those muscles. That yes. is the worst thing you can do. Those muscles are tight because they're trying to protect your back. So yeah. you stretch them, you loosen them, your back's going to get worse. What you need to be doing if you have tight muscles and your back is bothering you is strengthening those muscles, activating those muscles, but do not try to stretch them. It sounds like there's um, maybe, and maybe there's more, but there's two key benefits here. First, you're actually going to improve performance on the bike, but you're also going to help prevent injuries. Is that correct? Are there other benefits as well? Tons, but those are the two big ones. I mean, those are the ones that when we're talking, Chris, uh, if someone understands those two, they're going to do exceptionally well because they, they get it. But there's a, a lot of other ones from uh, posture and breathing, and that's one of the big, big things that I, I've really been pushing with my athletes uh, the last two or three years is posture and breathing. And, and that's something that as a cyclist and triathletes, I, I honestly think triathletes have it worse than we do because they have an overhead sport before cycling, so their shoulders get messed up pretty much. But fitness is a trade-off of a, a, a bunch of different variables, and we have to figure out as cyclists, we need to control stiffness in order to produce the power on the bike for long periods of time. And that can only really be done uh, if we develop it from the body to the pedals, which means we have to stiffen our axial skeleton, uh, including the pelvis, the spine, the rib cage, in order to produce the power necessary to be at the top of our sport. But if we don't balance out the posterior of the body, and especially with the diaphragm and the pelvic floor, like we're really breaking what, what Tony Gentle Core calls the three rings, uh, Posture Rehab Institute calls it the canister. On the bike, we're rounded forward. And the interesting thing is, is that uh, Dr. Stuart McGill, among many other researchers, have found that it's not a major impact on the back, like, a, a, you know, bending over to pick up something heavy necessarily that causes back injury. But it's something oftentimes that happens due to repetitive motions and you have something called creep uh, in the tissues. And essentially that's just like taking a Laffy Taffy that's been kind of laying on a warm counter and you kind of pull it slowly. Like you can kind of get it to look like it did at the beginning, but it just doesn't look quite right. The same thing can happen to our backs. And that's where we need to look at as cyclists. It's not just uh, allowing us to be able to balance the movements we have in our sport thousands, tens of thousands of times on an hour and a half ride, but it's also allowing us to work on bringing those tissues back and building endurance uh, in muscles that need to be able to hold us up in a, a postural way. Also interesting, you brought up Stuart McGill. I know that he can be controversial. Got to point out he is Canadian. We were just <laughs> he is. Canadian a minute ago. 
But I mean, I remember reading his book on, on, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but, but really focused on the athletes and he was very against the whole, the whole traditional idea of strength training of, of muscle isolation. He really said you need to train everything in chains, focusing on the, the sort of motions that you actually do in sports. And, and he's right. I mean, I had the opportunity to learn from him in 2013. He's controversial because he, he, he just follows the evidence. And I, I can't repeat, part of participation was agreeing there are certain things that he's like, if you want to record it, we can all be really boring and very legal and, and blah. We have to follow the evidence. He just tells it as he sees it and how it could be. So the, the interesting thing is if you listen to his interviews from 10 years ago and today, he's still saying the current evidence points us to X. It's not, and a lot of people like to say like, oh, the McKenzie method, the McGill method. And the McGill method is test the patient see what is going to cause the issues, see what they can stand, and then work from there. Because back pain, and especially as cyclists, we have to keep in mind that the body's working systems. There's a fantastic book out there which which completely changed uh, how I viewed my hip and my injury called Anatomy Trains by Thomas Myers. And essentially the premise of the book is there's several different meridians in the body where the fascia of the body, which is kind of like a spider web, runs through all of these different muscles. What would you say, Chris, if I told you that your right pec major, your right chest muscle is connected to your external obliques and the abs and the uh, and the lower hip on the opposite side? Like, you'd say I'm crazy, right? Eh, maybe. Or Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just right. had to do one. <laughs> oh, there we go. Just one. Those Pittsburgh people, all, it's all crappy beer. Um, <laughs> that's it. You do have one of the coolest bike races in the world with the, the hill climbs in Pittsburgh. Oh, that was so much yeah, the- fun. Dirty dozen, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you guys should totally have Danny Chu on the show. He is, you can't put him down. He, uh, fantastic human being, just a lover of bikes and a great person all around. Well, the other great race that you guys, this was my all-time favorite race was Altoona, which wasn't too <sighs> far away from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yes. And that was, that was such a shame. That was so well put on. So well put on every year. Yeah. It, it, it was true European style race in America. I mean, it was seven days, uh, almost all road races. Yep. It was fantastic. Tour de Tuna, they, ah, it was really hard for them. I, the team that I first sponsored when I, I became a coach back in 2007, uh, Pittsburgh Elite Velo worked closely with, with the organizer and, uh, it was really hard for him. Like he tried everything to keep it the last year and it's, it's changing. It's, and that's what we yep. spoke about a little bit at uh, the USA Cycling Coaching Summit. I mean, it's, it's tough, man. It's really tough. It is really hard to be an organizer now. The thing I was going to say, um, to try to, encapsulate or capture everything that we've been describing in terms of functional training. It sounds like what this is, is individualized strength training that fits into your life and takes into account who you are as an individual, what you do for a day job if you're not a professional cyclist, tries to counteract some of those habits you may have picked up at work, your workplace by sitting at a desk all day or, or whatever it is that you do for a day job and takes all of that into account to then create a plan, a strength training plan that, that counteracts those specific things, takes into account your, um, predisposition for X, Y, or Z. I guess that bring and, and I hope that that's a, a good explanation or summary, but I wonder if, if I feel like that also brings up the, okay, so how do I know what my strengths and weaknesses are from a functional standpoint? So I believe I will have to put a, a deposit back in the Canadian bank. I believe they would call that a howitzer. Uh, you just knocked that out of the park. I mean, that was, <laughs> through the glass, man. 
<laughs> we had a chance to ask Joe Dombrowski with EF Education First Pro Cycling about functional work. He pointed out that you don't need to use heavy weight, but it is something that you need to keep up. The stuff I, I do is mostly body weight. Um, like this winter, I was doing a bit of weightlifting, but not not a whole lot. But yeah, mostly, you know, pretty pretty simple stuff that I think it's I think it's one of those things where, at least for me, I find that once I get into the racing season, sometimes that kind of starts to fall off. You know, like we you know we start going to stage races and. Maybe you don't feel like doing your core work in the morning, you know, during a stage race, and then that carries over to when you go back home and you're back to training, and and then eventually you've done done like essentially a whole month where you haven't done any of that, and and you can see over the course of the season where if you don't do that, you start to get sort of sloppy on the bike, and um, I think for me that was a big thing this winter is you know, making sure that it's an everyday sort of thing and really being committed to it, just as committed to it as I am with doing, you know, my training on the bike. And then, you know, trying to continue that throughout the season, even in, we have pretty good support at the team in terms of physical therapists and and all that, that that work with us on that kind of stuff. You know, even in like, say, a week-long World Tour stage race, I see the the physio almost every morning and, and I'm doing core work before I race, so... Wow. That's commitment. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned time trialing like that. I think it's also particularly important because, you know, your ability to make power in that sort of aerodynamic reduced position, um, you're, you're relying on a lot of, a lot of muscles that, you know, don't really seem like they're doing a lot, but, you know, 45 minutes into that time trial, then you start to get sloppy and you, you start to lose power, not because you're like not physiologically capable of, of sustaining that power output, but you just can't sustain that position. Back to the show. So I want to, I'm going to tie these two together, the stretching and the strength that you're, you're asking about. So strength assessment, uh, let's go through the stretching and, and Trevor, I, I'm with you and I see the thing is people mean well. And a lot of us don't know what we don't know, right? I'm totally guilty of that. But you you hit the, the nail on the head. And a muscle has three jobs in the body. Number one is always to protect a joint. Like when I woke up this morning, uh, I can feel my iliacus, my glute meeting, glute min were on lockdown. You know, it was like San Quentin. <laughs> like I just, I woke up like, mm, this is not going to be good today. Uh, so you can't, a lot of people go, oh, the muscle's tight, so I'm going to stretch it. The thought process needs to be the muscle's tight. Hmm. Why is it tight? Okay, number one is to protect a joint. Exactly. What could have happened that it wants to protect the joint? Number two is to stabilize a joint while an adjacent joint moves. And number three is to move a joint. So when you go through that checklist, if you're thinking, oh, I just did a sentry rod yesterday and my back's tight uh, and, and tight hamstrings. Oh, man. Hamstring tightness, by the way, is almost always neural tension. Uh, so stretching that will only worsen the back and cause more 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 symptoms. So the, the stretching of hamstrings does not offer a protective against injury, I guess you would say. And, and there's studies, I think it was Fowles in early 2099, something like that. And there was another one in 2001, another one in 2003. Stretching helps us feel better. And, and stretching does work, but it doesn't solve the issue. It's kind of like potholes. So if you're from Pittsburgh, and you guys have both lived in snowy places, so I, I hope your your Department of Transportation is, is better than I think than I know ours. where this is going. You fill the pothole, right? 
And they're like, oh, great. And a week later, it's three times as bad. (laughs) And you're like, yep, I'm now commuting five more minutes to work because this is really dangerous. There's giant potholes and there's gravel everywhere. Uh, It's the same thing with stretching. There are times to stretch a joint, but even better is to add strength and, and bringing it back to back strength. Protective mechanism for back strength is endurance of those muscles. Just because you can deadlift 500 pounds off the ground doesn't mean you're going to be better protected against a back injury, whether you're a cyclist, a triathlete, or just, you know, uh, a jock. It's the endurance of those muscles, especially the upper uh, thorax. We have the longissimus, which runs essentially along the spine. And what's interesting is the upper spine, where us cyclists tend to round forward, is 75% slow twitch, which means it's an endurance-based muscle. But down at the bottom, it's 50-50. It's half and half uh, because it's there for performance. And as cyclists, we're just sitting there and stretching it out. This kind of leads to the strength assessment. So we have to look at every individual's, uh, you know, just like a bike fitter. I'm fitting you when you walk in that day. I'm not fitting you for where you were last year. I'm fitting you based on how you're moving today. Unless you say to me, hey, I just flew in and I've had this crick in my neck since I got up. You know, then we're obviously going to adjust a couple things. So the strength assessment looks at, number one, I start from the second I see the person. They don't have to say a word. I'm looking at how are they carrying their shoulders? How do their feet hit the floor? Where are their knees in alignment where compared to their hip and their ankle? Where are their shoulders compared to their knee from the side? And we have to figure out how are you, how is the body strategizing to hold itself up when you're bipedal, when you're walking? And then when we get on the bike, we see some people, they get on the time trial bike or they get on the road bike and you're like, oh, it's like butter on a Pillsbury biscuit, just beautiful. Where other people, you get on the bike, you're like, oh man, what are you doing? So we have to kind of look at how are you moving? And it's the same thing that you can do at home. This doesn't have to be fancy. Stand in front of a mirror uh, or stand in a well-lit place and have somebody take a picture of you front, right side, left side, back. Just make sure it's not in front of a window. But we want to look at your posture and then how are you riding the bike. So have someone take a, a video or do it yourself from the side so they can you can see yourself from tip to toe on the trainer and also from the front. Uh, tip to toe. And that will give you a good idea as to how you're moving. Now, even better, if you have space or have someone who can hold the, the uh, phone behind you, look at how you are supported or not supported and how your spine is moving. And that can ha- help us determine what strengths do you need on the bike? And then looking at how you're walking and how you're sitting and holding yourself, what strengths do you need off the bike? We have certain common threads in cycling, and that is we know that the posture is going to be jacked up because we're in that rounded forward position. So we want thoracic extension, which is something that can help us within reason decrease lower back pain. So actually, uh, if you're listening at home, unless you're driving a car, don't do this. If you're listening at home, sit up in your chair. Go ahead and, and find a chair that puts you at 90 degrees. So Chris and Trevor, if you guys can do that, that would be great. Now, I, I want you to try and tuck the chin back. So kind of like you have that change in your voice. So you're, you're sitting nice and tall. Pretend Miss Manners is behind you and pulling a string through the back of your head. And you want to lift your head like a ballerina. Now, I want you to take your right hand. And if you find the the sacroiliac or the bump on the back of your your butt, uh, right in the middle, go ahead and walk your fingers up about, I don't know, about an inch and a half, two inches. So it would be about where your pinky finger would be. If you push your head forward, you'll feel those muscles turn on. You guys feel that? Yep. And then push the head back. Does that stay on or does it turn off? I'm watching Chris. 
crane here with his head going back and forth. This is what we should be videotaping right here. Two guys sitting in a room touching their butts. That's with their their heads going back and forth like a bird. You you just did that to embarrass us. This has yeah. nothing to do with who's, the podcast at all, right? Who's filming us right now? Is this you, a, you guys look at the window behind you. you? Tom, come on in. <laughs> Smile, you're on Candy Cam. Um, but those muscles turn off and on. Uh, that's the longismus. And, and there's there's two segments. There's uh, the longismus and iliocostalis groups. Um, usually in anatomy books, they'll kind of call them uh, the same. But really, there's the thoracic portion and the lumbar portion. What we did by bringing that head forward is we activated a little bit more of the thoracic portion. If you stand up and do this, you'll actually feel it much more uh, obvious because now you're, instead of having your feet in front of you, your abs have to file fire rather. As cyclists, a lot of our spinal rectors are being lengthened. So think about having to hold a 13-pound bowling ball in your hand. Uh, like I can't even hold a regular six-pound kid's bowling ball without getting a sore shoulder when I'm riding a lot, but hold it in front of you. 13 pounds on that long lever arm is going to cause you know severe muscle soreness. When you're riding your bike, you're essentially doing the same thing. So we have to think uh, about getting that head back over our spine. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect or walk around with the, the cheesy, you know, smiley face, the worst picture face in the world as some of my clients call it because they have, you know, double chains and like, oh, I don't like this. If your Adam's apple is showing, that's also a sign that the posture can be corrected. But if we bring you back, if we just tuck that chin a little bit when you're off the bike, if we do that for two to three weeks and we get you to do a couple McGill crunches, which really should be called McGill bracing, where you get the transverse abdominis fired up, the internal oblique, very important and highly underrated. If we want to talk about functional training, I would hone in on the glutes and the internal oblique. What's because the internal oblique? I'm, I'm glad you asked. The internal oblique, uh, if you kind of poke in, well, it's after Christmas here. So if you kind of poke in on the side where the edge of your six packs would be on the outside, you know, that kind of line, that kind of, you know, yeah. or that's where the belly starts in my case, <laughs> you'll actually feel there's a little di- kind of a divot. If you brace your stomach, so let's, uh, we can do two versions. I'm going to lean back from the microphone. Uh, the first one is going to be a kind of scare the cat. You'll feel the muscles bulge out. Uh, or you can do the karate. Yeah. And you'll feel those muscles bulge out. The internal obliques are just towards the outside of where your fingers are. And they kind of lay down and in on the inside. So if you were to kind of put your hand back, uh, take your left hand, reach across, going towards your back pocket. So that awkward, why would I ever reach for anything back there? Um, That's how the internal obliques run. And they're an intrinsic muscle. They help us to buffer pressure, intra-abdominal pressure, and to stabilize the spine. The external oblique is one that we tend to get when we think about side planks. Uh, A lot of people are getting into those. But really, the internal obliques actually tie into the glutes. And the thing that's interesting about the internal obliques is they actually have four compartments. So you have lateral medial, so outer and inner, upper and lower. And as cyclists, we're turning two of those three off. We tend to turn off the medial, the inner part, and we tend to turn off the lower part because we're in that rounded position forward. So these muscles help to stabilize our spine, our rib cage and pelvis together. Uh, and as Dr. Pruitt pointed out in your, in your interview with him, the saddle, I mean, people, it's shoes and saddle. That's what you travel with in your bag. Chris, was it you who mentioned the old pros that have like the duct tape together seats, you know, they're yes. carrying around like, when you find a match for your butt, you know, otherwise your ass is grass, as they say. <laughs> a little too much fun here. It's just water, I promise. Just water. You would know. I'm a, I'm a whiskey, I'm a whiskey guy. <laughs> uh, you would know. So essentially, we have to fire these muscles up, and this is where the strength assessment comes in. That's why we look at the head 
compared to the shoulder, compared to the hip, compared to the knee. We want as straight of a line as possible. And most cyclists are going to have the head poking forward, the Adam's apple is going to show, and those shoulders rounded forward. Well, that's turning off at least two of those four compartments, theoretically, empirically. I don't have any hard evidence to say so, but it's also going to allow us to put more stress onto our back. And for any of us that that ride, that's the last thing we want. Because when you have back pain, and I think we've all been there, your back's a little bit tight. You get on the bike, you ride for 10 or 15 minutes. You feel great. You're like, oh, I'm so glad I went out. You get off 10 minutes after the shower, you sit down and eat. You're like, oh dear Lord, what did I do? <laughs> and now it's a, a, that vicious cycle downwards, which it sounds like Connor, you kind of had a experience with. Yeah, I've had a lot of experiences with back issues, with back pain, and it's definitely something to avoid. Today's episode of Fast Talk is sponsored by Oat Root. What is Oat Root? Well, it's not a cycling tour, and it's more than a road race. It's a multi-day Grand Fondo-style event where everyone starts together each morning, and you can ride with friends all day. You can indulge your competitive side on timed sections if you feel like it, and explore iconic cycling destinations around the world. Oat Route takes service to the next level with Pro Tour-style support on the bike and rider-focused amenities off it. Choose from a dozen events in 2019 in France, Italy, Norway, Oman, Mexico, and China. In the United States, there are still entries available for Oat Route Asheville, which I will be attending in May, and Oat Route San Francisco in September. Try something new in 2019. Try Oat Route. Can I um, jump in here for just a second? Yeah, you, you, um, you were talking about how people could do a little bit of uh, self-assessment with taking photos of the different positions, front, back, left, right, sides, on the bike, off the bike. What can they do with that information? Or sh- are you recommending they do that and then show that to someone else um, with experience to understand how that relates to the strength training they might need to do? Yes, to the latter. So uh, thank you for bringing us back to that, Chris. Um, so essentially, we can all see like how out of alignment you are and how much are you wiggling. So on the bike, it should be a video. Off the bike, it should be uh, a picture. And what you can do is you want to look at the alignment. So we want to see that for the most part, things are moving about straight. The body is not identical. Like we like to think so. Julia Roberts is the most beautiful woman in the world. Actually, there's now a woman in Dublin or in Ireland now who's the most beautiful. And what they're looking for, (laughs) I'm serious. It's symmetry. What they're looking for is symmetry. This woman in Ireland is like 99.8 and Julia Roberts is, you know, a far second at 99.73 or something. Poor Julia, you know, she had, she had her time. (laughs) Um, We have to think that the body's not going to be perfectly symmetrical, but we want to get as close to that as possible for our body. Um, so, for example, the neck of the femur. So, between Chris and I, we have four hips. Well, three if you count my you don't count my bad one, but we have four. His right, his left, my right, my left. One of those four is going to have a deviation in that angle of between five and twenty degrees. The point of this is we, we want to be roughly symmetrical, and this is where that whole, you know, the, the vector and the spin scan, 50-50, I need 50-50, not really, we're, we're, we're locked in. When it comes to your assessment, if you see that you're listing to the right every time that right pedal comes up over the top, we should probably do something about that. I would start at the saddle, check the saddle height, and then get you off the bike and look at you from the side and right side, left side. Are you pretty symmetrical on your right side and the left side? Why is your right shoulder rounded forward and your left shoulder is rounded back or, or nice and upright? So looking at it from that direction. And, and what I'll do, Chris, is I'll send you guys uh, links to a couple of the videos that I use to teach the assessment. Uh, one of them is a single leg hip lift. 
And this is fantastic. It's pretty easy to do. Uh, Tom, get the video ready. We're going we're gonna to have him do silly stuff again. <laughs> if one of you guys wants to try this now, great. If one of you wants to lay on the floor on your back, and, and oh, what Chris I usually do with this. All right, I'll try it. If you have like, um, do you have a, a water bottle, preferably closed or empty, like something, maybe a tennis ball that you can put that's about the size of your fist between your lowest rib like, and your oh, upper leg? Yeah, microphone. And okay. what we're going to do is you're going to take, let's say you're going to bend both legs. So you're laying on your back. You're going to bend both legs. So both uh, knees are bent, but your feet are flat on the floor. So kind of like you're sitting in a chair with your feet tucked behind you. Take one leg. You're going to place the microphone or the water bottle at the lowest rib, and you're going to place the hands behind your hamstring at the the back of your knee, and you're going to pull one leg all the way up so that you can squeeze the microphone, the, the tennis ball, whatever it is, so it won't move. Yep. Okay. Now I want you down here, but I'm on the floor. It sounds like you're in a cave. Hey, (laughs) is that my tennis ball? No, just kidding. Um, So now what we're going to do is I want you to this though. (laughs) Uh, I want you to drive through. Good blackmail is always an option, Connor. Always, always. Um, Just kidding. You're going to drive your weight through the other foot that's flat on the floor while keeping that tennis ball or microphone from moving. So I want you to go ahead and drive five times through the base of the foot lifting your hips off the ground. Uh, and Connor, if you can, uh, you can take a video or stand above him so that you're just uh, above his head and watch how much his hips sway side to side. Hold on. <laughs> if it really, all is embarrassing, I Chris, I'm all for it. I really don't know if I'm <laughs> doing this right. but Okay, I am filming. Good, good video. Okay. Show us your so, stuff, Chris. All right, how's it look? Awful. I should put <laughs> okay, the bullet in the mouth. He's he's swaying side to side. Is one hip dropping over the other? A little bit. He's actually pretty good. And is his knee falling to the outside at all as he drives up? Drive up again, Chris? Uh, I would say it's almost falling to the inside. Ah, interesting. Okay, so that's unique. Let's try the other side and see what happens. And these should be pain-free, by the way. So anytime, uh, anytime we're doing an assessment, no sharp pain, numbness, tingling, loss of sensation. None of that should happen. If it does, you want to stop immediately. Don't go, oh, well, I wonder what, what's causing that sharp pain. <laughs> Keep going. You want to stop and, and move on to the next thing. All right. Chris, any pain or discomfort when you switch legs there? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. This one, the knee is going a little to the outside. Okay. And what's, what's his, uh, his hip doing? Is his hip kind of dropping to the inside as he comes up? The knee goes out, hip drops down? I'm tangled up in a bunch of cords and under a table, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, we don't have the best angles here, but it looks like it's okay. dropping a little bit. Okay. So, so this would be fairly common for a cyclist. And you can go ahead and get up, uh, Chris, uh, unless you found some change on the floor, in which case that would be great. We can go for drinks after. <laughs> Espresso's on Chris. <laughs> So essentially what what this is, we're taking the psoas out as a stabilizer or a hip flexor and forcing your internal external obliques as well as the quadratus lumborum uh, and a number of other muscles at the midsection to act as stabilizers while you're going through hip extension. And the reason I like this a lot as a assessment for cyclists is because when we're pedaling our bike, it's almost similar. One leg is coming up, the other leg is going forward. So we're putting you into a non-weight bearing on one side, taking out one of the major stabilizers. Uh, and there has been current research that's come out suggesting that the psoas acts as a lumbar stabilizer. Uh, and by the way, if anybody says to you an iliopsoas, you have my full permission to ask them, what do the five fingers say to the face? Flat. <laughs> there is... No such thing as the iliopsoas. It has been well proven since the 90s, if not earlier, 
They are two distinct muscles, the iliacus and the psoas, different innervations. They tend to branch off from the same basic nerve, but so do a bunch of other uh, muscles. So please take iliopsoas out, throw it out. It is not a term. It's not real. Or if anybody says that to you, you can say false. Bears beats Battlestar Galactica uh, if you're a fan of The Office. Um, but sorry, I'm having fun, man. We're, we're uh, loving this. Keep going. <laughs> Meanwhile, you guys are pouring the scotch. Hey, look at this guy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, too early for sound. <laughs> um, but it's it's one of those things where it's a sports specific, and everybody now is sports specific. Well, as Eric Cressy says, you can get as sports specific as you want, but we have a problem in American baseball where players can throw ninety miles an hour, they can hit left field, right field, opposite field, and they can also uh, throw a line from the outfield to the catcher, but they can't play a simple game of catch. And we're having the same thing with people who are doing sports-specific training of lunges and leg press and hamstring curls. These are great, but that's like putting in a Ferrari engine uh, into a 76 Pinto. You know, you can have a great engine, but you're going to have no control. But this is what's important about strength training is that everybody wants sports-specific. I want to do walking lunges. And again, it comes back to, you know, which type of, of tool should you use? Kettlebells and bands and uh, dumbbells? The answer is yes. Which one works best for you right now? Lunges can work, but do you have pelvic, lumbo-pelvic control? Do you have the ability to maintain a good upright posture? Can you get back body expansion breathing? Um, so Trevor, we'll try this one with you. It's called um, crocodile breathing. It's going to involve laying on the floor. So if the floor is dirty, uh, we oh. may want a towel or we can just skip it for today. Oh, that's all right. I've been moving, so okay, I'm so- just in a perpetual dirty state. And and that's why I chose you for this one, not for the hip lift after. So uh, actually, I want this is going to help you open, especially after moving and everything. Uh, so you're going to lay face down on the floor. You're going to put your hands one on top of another, and you're going to put them underneath your forehead. So you're laying face down. You want to make sure that you're not looking forward, so your nose should be kind of touching the floor straight in front of you. And Chris, I want you to kind of check his sides, um, the flanks. So I want you, Trevor, to take a deep breath in through the nose over about three seconds, and fill your back, the middle of your back, between your shoulder blades with air. And I want you to keep breathing in, filling that space until Chris says that he sees the flanks expanding. And that should happen. You'll feel the belly kind of open up into the floor. But the focus is going to be on back body expansion. So breathing into in between your shoulder blades. We'll go uh, two or three breaths here and see how you do. Breathe in for five seconds. Hold for a count of three. And then out through the mouth uh, through a, a nice relaxed ha for two seconds. Yeah, I can see it. I can see the it. Flanks Every, are kind of, everything's moving. Even his butt is expanding when he does this. Okay, so that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want his butt to lift. So that's tight hip flexors. Uh, so, Trevor, what I want you to do is I want you to take your feet uh, a little bit wider than shoulder width, and I want you to point your toes behind you, kind of like a dolphin. He's struggling to fit his length between the garbage can and a rack of of shelves and what else do we have? A blow-up doll and um, fruit stand and, um, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Chris, you know what this means, right? We're going to have to get a bigger room for you guys before we bring uh, Bradley Wiggins in. Absolutely. Sir Bradley's just not going to fit. Nope. Okay, Trevor, how'd that feel? So we want to keep the hips relaxed. So this is a common issue. Now, I'm going to give you one more cue, and this is a little bit tough to to coach blind, but I want you to breathe in to the mid-back, and at the same time, I want you to relax your stomach and think about filling air below your belly button at the same time, kind of like you're you're filling the bottom towards uh, the bowels, if you will. 
Chris, did that get the hips to stay down a little bit better? It's a little bit better. There's still a little bit of movement, but I would say it is better, yes. Okay. And he's still getting the sides of the belly to expand out? Yeah. Okay, awesome. So, Trevor, if that feels good, go ahead and do two more. Uh, do, do you feel any difference between the two of those with that different cue? Yeah, hard to explain, but I feel like I'm staying on the ground versus lifting off the ground. That is perfect. All right, so let's get you two more, and then we'll have you uh, pop off off the ground. Uh, and that's probably from moving stuff and sitting a lot. But this is an important consideration for most of us. Like after a ride, Chris, or even after just sitting in a chair, I'm going to do this exact exercise as long as my hip doesn't seize up. Uh, either will be on the bed. Uh, and that was the other thing. My wife came back, and she's like, what are you doing? Like I'm breathing to relax my hip flexors. She's like... We need to change the sheets. I'm like, I know that now. <laughs> uh, edit that out. Uh, or you can leave it in. Um, she'll kill me. <laughs> I didn't do anything, honey. I swear. We were just hanging out. Um, how do you feel standing up here? Felt a little more relaxed. But th- this is important because as cyclists, and, and I have a video up on YouTube called How to Ride Your Bike Faster. And it tells people how to sit on the bike and belly breathe. Cool factoid. My sprint that I, that I show there absolutely sucked. That video was taken the third week after I broke my ankle, <laughs> uh, that I was allowed to ride the, the indoor bike. So I was really bored and I was like, Oh, let's just make a YouTube channel about how to sit on your bike faster. And if you watch that sprint, it is textbook of exactly what not to look like. And thankfully someone caught that I was like, your sprint looks awful. I was like, yes, thank you. What we're trying to do with the belly breathing is expand that lower belly as well, which will keep those hip flexors fresh for when you need to get out of the saddle and pedal hard, which let's be honest, uh, all of us have those town sign sprints. We all want to be able to do that. Uh, and it allows you to use the major movements, movers and tap into the glutes a little bit more, which actually do about 33% of the force or should produce about 33% of the force for when you're cycling. But most cyclists get it from their quads because we're so focused on two things, one pushing down and two rounding our back to get as aero as possible. So we've now altered the biomechanical positions and this is bringing it back to the strength assessment and why we look at the posture from the side because we want to see how rounded forward are those hips. The rectus femoris and the psoas and the iliacus will all kind of shorten a little bit because we're asking the body, we're saying to the body, hey, being in this rounded forward position is really freaking important because there's probably a cheetah or maybe it's fast cat coaching coming after us. I don't know. But somebody behind us is coming to eat us. It's probably a cheetah. We should go fast. And the body's like, oh, this is important. I'm going to remember this mm-hmm. and keeps us there. I'm going to take a, a quick step back here and just kind of give a, a very high level of why all of this is so important and why we're talking about all these different activations, different involvements of different muscles. I actually worked for about a year when I was at CSU in a biomechanics lab where we were modeling motion. So we'd bring in people, we had a, a 3D camera studio, we'd bring them in and, and capture them walking. And then the software would determine what muscles are producing th- those movements. Biggest thing that I learned for my one year in the studio is that we can generate the same motion a lot of different ways. So for example, you take your hip, um, my anatomy is horrible, but I, I think we have over 20 muscles that cross the hip. So when you're talking about extending your leg, there's eight, nine muscles that can all actually produce that movement. But with any particular movement, there is an optimal combination. Now, the extreme of where this gets bad is you look at elderly people, especially an elderly person who has broken a hip, and they have that shuffle walk. That's a result of the major mover muscles are no longer firing properly. 
So they're still actually able to produce that movement. They're still actually able to to lift, sort of lift their leg, extend it forward, do the walking motion. But it's weaker muscles. It's not the optimal muscles that are producing the movement. So you get this kind of shuffle walk. I can't remember the exact statistics, but when you see that, that increases the likelihood of mortality in the next two years quite dramatically. Mm-hmm. So just that losing that function, losing that ability to use the optimal muscles has a huge impact on, on mortality when you're talking about elderly populations. When we're talking about us, people on the bike, you might be doing the movement. You might be spinning your legs in a circle. You might be doing the pedal stroke, but you might not be using the optimal muscle combination and you might not know it. And that translates into A, it can lead to injury. B, you're going to be weaker on the bike. And that's what happens, right? People say, oh, and, and this is what I loved, uh, just as I can plug the computer in here. Uh, this is what I loved about uh, Joe Friel's Faster After 50. You shouldn't be slowing down as you get older. Triathlon, they don't usually. When you age up, you're fast. You're the fastest in the group. What happens is, is that over time we lose two things. One is diaphragmatic breathing, which most of us as cyclists completely suck at. And this is important because your pelvic floor is actually made up of a number of small muscles. Your, your deep, Hip rotators are your pelvic floor and your pelvic floor are your deep hip rotators. So you have, oh man, it's been a while since I've gone through these. You have, uh, my favorite, which is, um, uh, glomellus, right? There's two of those. Then you have the piriformis, which we all know. You have the rectus femoris. We have the obturator internus and externus, which a surgeon once tried to convince me were eye muscles, which is complete BS. So you have these six muscles that if you don't get good diaphragmatic breaths, which most of us as cyclists and triathletes don't, those muscles are going to shorten and tighten. To, to take it even further, the American College of Sports Medicine, the technical definition of aging is loss of range of motion at a joint. So I've seen cyclists who have hip extension of a, a 67-year-old at the age of 28, and I've seen cyclists at the age of 25 who have shoulder range of motion that is at the age of 80. So think about that. It's not just the, the age that you are. It's those muscles having to balance. So exactly what you're, what you're saying, Trevor, is, is spot on. It's not just the muscles having to be, uh, to go through that range of motion. It's getting the joint into the right position because joint position dictates muscle function. So those who, who took the strength training for triathlon course I have will remember that because I go joint position dictates muscle function because it's so important for triathletes to understand cyclists. It, it's, it comes back to that breathing. So yeah, you can big ring it all day, but if you can't stand up and get hip extension, your back is going to hurt and now you're going to start to slow down. So you're going from being the old fast guy to being the guy who you just can't shake off the wheel or can just do that tempo that's just hard enough all day. And I think you also brought up a very important point earlier on that range of motion, too many people equate that with, oh, I need to stretch. It's all flexibility. Sometimes that can be counterproductive, mm-hmm. but range of motion isn't just about making yourself more flexible. You also have to strengthen those muscles. You need to get that proper firing pattern. All these things combined with also a, a level of flexibility in the muscle are what are going to allow the proper range of motion. And it also comes down to the, the muscle fiber contractile properties that we want. So if you're a bodybuilder, we don't want to take yoga. If you're a time trialist and you're having trouble getting your, your hips into that position, maybe yoga is good for you for a small amount of time. So stretching, like everything has its its place, but there is no one solution. And just stretching does not do it. A lot of time it's neural tension, and that can only be worked out by getting the joints into better positions. Uh, so that is an excellent, excellent observation. Last year, Chris and I talked with strength and conditioning coach Jess Elliott. 
She discussed with us a quite sophisticated 3D motion capture system she was using to look at athletes' muscle firing patterns. During our interview, she addressed just how minute a change in motion or position can lead to less than optimal firing patterns. And it's it's amazing just um, how minute certain certain things can be that can completely influence your overall performance. Um, one of my mentors used to say, joint position dictates muscle function. And that's actually how the system can identify the primary movers that you're activating. And they actually correlated the data that we received with the DARI system with actual EMG data as well. And so it's usually, it's just the smallest shift in position that'll cause us to recruit a different muscle that's going to be less than optimal for performance. And that could have to do with muscle tightness. Um, you know, if you have a little bit more lateral chain tightness, so, um, you know, you'll see people's knees kind of bowing out when they squat. They need to open up the hips because they don't have the mobility either at the hips or the ankles to really maintain um, a straightforward toe and knee angle position. So they like to open up the hips to kind of cheat the movement. But when they're doing that, they don't realize that they're actually going to recruit slightly different muscles because they're now in a different position. So remember, joint position dictates muscle function. And here's this great opportunity to jump back onto one of my soapboxes, which is <laughs> get a bike fit. Absolutely. Same sort of thing. If you aren't quite in the right position on the bite, you can't feel it, but you're you, you're going to be recruit, uh, producing the motion with less than optimal firing patterns. Absolutely. And that's when you get knee injuries. That's when you start getting dropped in races. And a uh, good fitter is going to be able to identify these things. It's true. It's definitely an investment you want to make because you need to have that machine working for you, not against you. Right. Let's get back to the show. All right, so we've heard a lot of and gone down a lot of rabbit holes as we've as we said we've gotten on our butts, we've gotten on our faces, laid on the floor, we've done some things, and we have photographic evidence, and we have and photographic it's, evidence. It's going to get posted. <laughs> well, <laughs> the references. we'll we'll see. I mean, we'll see. But but let's talk. Let's uh, let's dive into some of the the practical nature of this and and talk specifically about what cyclists should and shouldn't do, when they should do it, all of those things. You hear what you want to hear. So people are like, oh, he said this is going to help me, but it's making me more painful. So the starting point is, number one, the crocodile breathing. I mean, that that is bar none off the bike uh, during the season, especially if you haven't done any breathing exercises before. I always like starting there. And I'll send you the video. Uh, it's about three and a half minutes long, so the viewers can actually get cued how to do it. So that would be number one. Why do we start with breathing? It helps us get the recovery. And and this is one of the biggest things that will also help you on the bike. During these exercises for strength training, you're also learning how to control your breath, which allows you to learn how to control your heart rate, which allows you to control how you're going to respond in a race. And this can make or break a career, literally, and nobody talks about it. So that's the first thing is breathing. The second thing, uh, so crocodile breath, we would go two sets of five breaths in through the nose over five seconds, depending on the intensity of the ride, will hold for anywhere from four to eight seconds. The higher the intensity of the ride, the longer the hold is going to be, and then out through the mouth. Now, the mouth is going to depend if it's a ha or a hu based off of your uh, rib angle, but we won't go into that. Most cyclists, uh, because the external obliques tend to be a little bit less strong, will go through a ha. Tons of science behind that. We'll get into that another time. Um, so two sets of five. Next, we would want to go into the big McGill three or what he calls the big three. Uh, these are the McGill crunch 
And please, and I, I'm not saying this because I want you guys to come to my, my YouTube channel. I'm saying it because 99.9% of the videos out there on the McGill Crunch are complete and utter BS. They're wrong. They are wrong, 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 wrong. So I, I, it's it's a, a point of pain for me because I went and followed it and had my own back pain get worse. And then when I finally learned from McGill, I'm like, I need to make a video on this and help people. So uh, number one is the McGill Crunch. Uh, start off with two sets of five, holding for about three seconds. The big thing for the McGill Crunch is, remember we did that brace before where the fingers were, so you went, or kya? That's the movement we're looking for. The head and the rib cage should be connected, and your head should just hover off the ground, about a paper width off the ground, barely off the ground. So two sets of five, holding for three seconds, working your way up to holding each for 10 seconds. Exceptions being, if you have high blood pressure, you've had a, a certain aneurysm or other things going on that are challenging your blood pressure, that holding your breath and creating intra-abdominal pressure are not for you, including if you have prolapse, diastasis, or any other issues of those sorts, including abdominal surgery. So any type of stuff like that, skip the McGill crunches. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, when people hear the word crunch, they might assume that you're talking about just a normal crunch. How does this differ? Very much. So a, a normal crunch, we like to think of flexing the spine. Well, here's the thing. Spines can only handle so much uh, flexion and extension. Depends. They're all kind of like rods of steel. So my spine is a little bit more bolstery, so I can't get away with crunches. I've always hated them. Uh, whereas my wife is a little bit shorter, more slender spine. She can do a bunch. The McGill crunch is actually a brace. And, and it was given the McGill a curl up is the official name. But essentially, we're looking to brace the midsection. So the other way to think of it is keeping your chin tucked back in that cheesy smile face with the triple quadruple chin. Brace your stomach as if Jackie Chan is going to punch you in the stomach. That's essentially the movement that the McGill crunch is. So really, it's a McGill curl up or brace. Uh, it's a very small motion. And all we're doing is we're accessing and activating all of the muscles that create this hoop around our abdomen, internal and external obliques, transverse abdominis, and yes, your rectus abdominis, the six-pack muscle. But we're not looking for major motion from the spine. We're looking for a bolstering uh, portion, like looking to brace as if someone's going to punch you. So it should be a 360-degree brace uh, around the midsection. And this can take you a couple weeks to learn how to do it. Uh, it's not a simple exercise. Uh, and uh, of point... Uh, make sure you go to the restroom before you try these. Uh, that is important. Good advice. No, I, I, these muscles that you mentioned, I mean, they've been referred to as your your body's natural back brace. So essentially, what you're doing is is you're developing those muscles to 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 help protect your back. Mm -hmm. Correct. And that's why they're after the, the, the ride is exactly that reason is most of us are professional at something else. And, and even the professional cyclists will do this just one set instead of two, but more repetitions. Um, so yeah, I mean, we just have to think about what, are we just going to be a cyclist for the rest of our life? Like we're just going to strap our kids on our back and take them to college that way. I mean, cool. If you can, that's awesome. But you know, and tandem doesn't count. We're talking about literally on your back, not does the basket, but we have to think about what we're doing outside. And, and this is why it's important to do these exercises after. After. So yeah, it, it's the body's natural brace. Um, and this is, you know, when someone takes a, a weightlifting belt, and I, I just contributed to a piece for greatest on this, is um, the weightlifting belt is there to help you create more pressure. And and my coach, my strength coach, has actually been on my back about it for a couple of weeks because I'm moving heavier weights. I, I'm not able to ride as much. My hips been in and out, in and out, so I'm riding maybe three hours a week. I've put on a lot of mass because of that, uh, which has taken a, a time to get used to. But um, the, the whole point of the 
the belt for weightlifting, uh, please don't be the person who walks in and just puts on a belt like, hey, I lift, I'm a cyclist um, or triathlete. The weightlifting belts are there to help you create more intra-abdominal pressure. That's all. It stimulates it. So we have the crocodile breath, two sets of five. We have the McGill crunch or McGill curl up. Let's let's make it the official. So it's a very small motion, barely an inch for your head off the ground, but it should be ribs and pelvis, uh, ribs and head moved together. Um, and it's a specific setup as well with one leg straight, straight at the knee, toes pointed up. Other leg is as Chris was before with the flat uh, foot on the ground. Uh, we'll watch the video for that. The next exercise is the side plank. And this is perhaps... Uh, a great example of how things can be perpetuated on the internet incorrectly and in print. The side plank is an exercise that McGill actually found in his uh, research uh, was helpful. Now, the reason why the reason why people do the side plank with their feet stacked was an artist's rendering mistake. The picture sent to him is with the left leg back. But when the artist looked at it from the side, it looked like the feet were stacked, which they are not. In order to access the most compartments of the obliques, remember we mentioned before, medial, lateral, upper, and lower. In order to activate all of those compartments, we want to have our left leg back. So it's a side plank on your elbow, not on your hand. We want to be on the elbow. Um, and you want to be in a straight line, tucking your chin back. Ribs are down. So a lot of us as cyclists like to arch our ribs up or, or push our butt back. And the left leg is back. We'll do these for uh, two times. I'm assuming this is when you have your right side down, so your left leg is your your upper leg when you say it's back. I do it for both sides. I do left leg back for both sides. Um, That's something that I found works. Uh, The reason is I learned this from Eric Cressy. When you go to open a door, Chris, are you right or left-handed? Right-handed. And Trevor, are you right or left-handed? Right-handed. So when you go to open a door, which foot do you step forward before you pull the door open, right or left? Left foot. Most of the time, yes. Trevor, same thing? I have no idea to tell you the truth, and now I'm going to be so conscious of it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> it. Well, this is going to I, I'm um, going to run into a door walking out of here. I don't know what my feet. Went with. Ah. We're going to be calling to everybody else at home. Let us out. We can't open the door. <laughs> uh, I'm in a glass case of emotion. <laughs> What I learned is most of us are right-handed, so the left leg goes forward. So that means the internal and external oblique on those sides are going to be offset, so left leg is back. And a lot of people are confused by this. I still have it with my my distance clients. Where like they send me video, I'm like, "Why is your right leg back?" They're like, "Because I did left leg on the other side." I'm like, "The name of the exercise is left leg back." That's fascinating. So left leg back, yeah. both sides. That's a nice little tip. Both sides. Now I'm assuming yeah. for left-handed it people, it'd be the other way around, right foot back, or you still exactly. Okay. Exactly. I love it. And that, that's, that's the key. And the thing is, is that we want to find what works for the person. Uh, and this is what, you know, what I found from learning from these top experts. Uh, Brett Contreras was another one. And at the end of his seminar, he asked, what's the best approach to help your athletes grow their glutes? And someone said, barbell hip thrust. He's like, I wish I could say yes, but that's not the answer. And someone else said body weight. And someone else said bands. And he says, you're all correct. Find what they feel the most. They get the most sore from. And that's what you're going to do. Now, now, disclaimer, for him, sore is good because he's looking for, for hypertrophy. We don't want that as cyclists necessarily. But when it comes to our exercises, do the left leg back. And then after two weeks, try it the other way. Try right leg back. Find what works for you. There are definitely people out there, left leg back on my left side, right leg back on my right side. Why? It works for them. Um, so kind of find it. But the way I write it is left leg back. The fourth one is another bane of my existence as a strength coach, and I've had two athletes in the last week do them incorrect, so they kind of kicked off this week's uh, um, Facebook posts on how to properly do these exercises. 
bird dogs. The bird dog is meant to be a spine-sparing exercise. There should be zero, and repeat, zero zip zilch, nada, movement at the spinal column. Um, and this is where uh, they've kind of been butchered, where people take the elbow to knee and kind of crunch down. This is somebody decided they wanted more of a burn in an aerobic class. I can see, you know, uh, what's her name, uh, back in the 1980s with the blonde hair and uh, the exercise step aerobics, I forget her name, Jane Fonda. Yeah, but Suzanne Summers was another one. She was great on uh, Step by Step, which was a, a sitcom. <laughs> Back on topic. Um, so the bird dogs, and these will be the next ones that I, I'm going to release here this week. Uh, so I'll send it to you once it's edited and up. The bird dog, I generally start people at two sets of three, and we don't even move the arm and leg. We just start off with just lifting the hand keeping the midsection brace. So the big thing for cyclists, again, is tucking that chin back. So you should be looking straight down in front of you. You're going to go into a cow camel. So rolling your your pelvis forward and the shoulders come down, and then you're going to roll the other way, and you're going to find spine neutral. Exceptions being if one of these is going to exacerbate your pain, don't go in that direction. So we want to find spine neutral and then brace our stomach. We're going to take our shoulder blades. Oh, sorry, just to interrupt you. So the starting position mm-hmm. is for people who don't know the bird dog. Is arms in, uh, on, the, on the ground, hands on the floor, and knees on the floor with the right. feet resting behind you. So like you were a kid uh, pretending you were a dog. Exactly. Uh, and by the way, the reason they're called bird dogs is because when you think about like the pointers, the, the breeds that were bird dogs, the tail goes straight back and the, the hand comes up, right. the front leg comes up. That's where it gets their name, like Labradors. Awesome so the, the traditional motion here, because I, I do this a lot for my back, is the, you raise one arm straight out in front of you and the so if you lift your your left arm you then raise your right leg um, out behind you correct exactly and the thing is is that it's very challenging we want the glutes to extend the hips and we want the mid traps and the rotator cuff primarily to raise the arm and some people argue with me with the rotator cuff semi message will have it, it essentially comes down to that but there's good glenohumeral rhythm that should happen so if you feel it in the front of your shoulder or your tricep for the arm or you feel it in the hamstring or the lower back uh, for your leg you're not doing it properly so we want to digress uh, and tony Gentlecore has a great video uh, i'll have to remember to send that over to you on how to build up but essentially we're only going to start for the bird dog wherever you can maintain trunk Mobile, uh, stability, not mobility. So you're on the hands and knees. We're going to bring the shoulder blades back into our back pockets, which is going to fire our lats. And what you want to do is brace your stomach and try and first just lift up the right hand off the ground and don't let anything else in your body move. If you can do that, great. Right hand goes back down, reset, left hand. And we'll start there. And there are a lot of cyclists that can't even lift their hand off the ground without uh, bending at the spine. So if you can do that, then we move to the legs. Hands stay on the ground. Okay, we're going to try and slide your toe so you have no shoes on, just socks. We're going to try and slide the toe back on the ground from the hip. As soon as you feel either you lose the stability at the midsection or you feel the hamstring firing too much, we're going to stop the motion, come back, and this is where most people stop uh, bracing. They come back and you see their hips do all kinds of weird stuff. And it sounds like, Trevor, you had a, a PT, a physio, uh, teach you these. I'm guessing they, they spent some time there teaching you to brace on the way back up. Uh, yes, I did. The, it was a chiropractor who worked with the, uh, the national program up in Canada who took me through all this stuff. And that's what finally originally got my back sorted out. This was a key exercise for me. And how hard was it for you to learn it, though? I mean, that, that must have taken a couple of weeks if you were in that much pain. Well, we started with easier. I mean, first, all we did for a month, I mean, when I went and saw him, my back was fully out. 
So we just started with lying on my back and just doing TV activation until I, I started the, the pain went away or most of it went away. And then he started with these sorts of exercises and it was more preventative. And, and that's the thing is, and that's why it's important to start where you start. And I, I have, uh, one of my clients is, uh, 60, uh, 60 plus. She, uh, did the bike BC last year. Fantastic athlete, lifelong athlete. And she sent me a video. Her daughter was trying to help. Her daughter meant well. She's 13. And she showed her the version of touching the, the knee to elbow. So my client sent me the video and I was like, no, 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 that's why your back is hurting. Do not do it that do way. That. Cause people, yeah, people mean well, but you have to think what are the points of the exercises? And right now we're at number four for our list of, of six exercises getting off the bike. So we have the crocodile breath, two sets of five, McGill crunch, two set or curl up, I'm sorry. McGill curl up, two sets of five, holding each for three to five seconds. The side planks, left leg back, two sets of uh, 15 seconds each side. So right side 15, left side 15, right side 15, left side 15. The bird dogs at whatever remediation you need, uh, if that's the right word. Uh, number five is going to be hip lifts. So for this one, we want to keep the abs braced and we want to drive our feet into the ground and use our glutes to extend the hips. After a ride, most of us aren't going to have a lot of movement from the, the, the glutes. We're going to have hamstring. So you start off just kind of squeezing your butt as if there's a million dollar bill back there, trying to get as much motion as you can, and then you build up. Uh, and the hip lifts, I generally tell people start at 15 to 20, but if it's been a hard ride, you'll have, you'll have cramping in the hamstring. So you just have to kind of play with where that is. Um, and the last one, uh, is going to depend. Uh, it's whatever exercise feels good to you. If you feel like your, your neck and your upper back are nice and stiff, it would be something called the sideline windmill, uh, which I can send you a, a video for. This is where you lay on your side, uh, one hand on top of the other. If you guys know the dance craze for all the, the elementary kids, mama sharp, Data shark, grandma shark, uh, kind of like that. <laughs> Those of you who have kids, totally get it. It's stuck in your head. That's I'm sorry for bringing that yes. earworm up. We won't play yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be the outro today. It's special. Um, oh God. and then you're going to lay on your side with the, <laughs> the hands like that and you're going to bring the knees in front of you so that you look like you're sitting in a chair. Now in that position, you want to make sure your spine is nice and tall so you're not rounded forward. Spine is nice and tall. You're going to roll forward with the top hand until the butt of the hand on the top is touching the tips of the fingers. And you're going to try and rotate that hand on the ground up and over around you above your head, eyes on your fingers of the top hand at all times, kind of like you're drawing a rainbow. Um, so the uh, elementary kids I work with for the basketball team all make fun. They go rainbow every time they do it. Cause that's what I told them at the beginning <laughs> of the season. Uh, and this is great to open up the thorax, uh, the, uh, the rib cage, uh, open up the lats, which are extremely tight in cyclists because we do no overhead movement unless you need a wheel, uh, or you're hungry. And that's mostly, uh, for professionals. The worst is to see someone win a race, try and throw the hand overhead, and it just looks like, what, what's he pointing out ahead of him? What, what, what's happening? <laughs> Was that supposed to be a post <laughs> Practice it. You've got to be able to raise your hands when you win a race. This is important. Exactly. And wait till after you cross the line, please. We've all seen that video of the oh. poor guy. So th that would be the last. The most common would be the sideline windmill uh, or the Spider-Man with breath, uh, depending. And the Spider-Man is called the greatest stretch of all time. Uh, for cyclists, I like to call it torture because you just can't get into the movement. 
I'll send you a video of that, but essentially imagine taking a long stride, a really long lunge, so the back leg is straight. Uh, you're going to put the hands on the floor inside the front leg, inside the front knee, and you're going to try and squeeze the glute and then stand up from that position. Uh, if a cyclist ever owes you money at a bar, just have them do this and take their wallet. They'll be down there for a couple hours. <laughs> and I yeah. do love that you, you threw in an exercise of, of opening up the chest because cycling, you sit there with your whole upper body crunched and you could see, you can see in long-term cyclists, they can just never, their, their shoulders are always rounded. They're always crunched up. So exercises that open up the chest are so important for cyclists. Yeah. And if you can't do the sideline windmill, just foam roll your lats. A lot of people don't know you can do that, but that like, like we talked about at the beginning, like, you know, the, the, the oblique ties into the opposite pec minor. And that, like you said, uh, Trevor, that, that pec is so tight, so tight. Um, but that also comes from the lat. So yeah, um, that's why, that's why I threw that one in there. Even the, the Spider-Man, there's a rotation in it. Um, my intern's doing an edit on one of them now. So I'll see if I can send it over to you guys. So we'll post all of these exercises on the website. So for anybody who's interested in downloading this routine, we'll, we'll have it up after this podcast. Uh, I actually did a piece for Bicycling Magazine. I'll send that over to you. It has eight different exercises for neck and shoulder pain. Before we wrap up this episode, we thought we should include a clip by Michelton Scott writer Brent Bookwalter, reminding us that it's worth losing 50 minutes on the bike to do this sort of work. This is a really big issue, and I think this one, um, I know for me, is much easier to preach than it is to actually practice because me personally, and I know a lot of people that are involved in cycling, we do it because we love riding bikes. Like We love the, the freedom it gives us, and we love this endorphin high we get off it, and we love just the mechanics and fluidity of the pedaling and the beautiful places that it can take us doing a big loop. Um, that's like my favorite thing to do is going up into the mountains and being out there all day and not riding any of the same roads and coming back. I think, yeah, a lot of times what, if it comes down to riding one more hour or coming home an hour early or 30 minutes early and uh, focusing on efforts to recover or giving yourself a little more time to even just like kind of, pin up for areas of your life to anticipate, you know, other training opportunities that are going to come later in the week. I think you're usually better served to cup of 30 minutes um, and come back and, and get yourself together. I know me personally, if an extra 30 minutes in my ride isn't probably going to make me any, any stronger, any um, faster necessarily, but if if I ride an extra 30 minutes and I push it too long and I come home and I know that I have to rush out the door right away for an appointment and I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat properly. I'm not going to stretch properly. I'm not going to let my body cool down and recover properly. Then right away, I'm at a disadvantage for the, the coming day, the coming days. Yeah, that's a really good point. So my another top okay, angle there. My wife, um, she used to be she used to race professionally. She obviously she she loves to ride as well, and she still rides a lot and. Um, when she was racing, um, you know, that was, that was her job and that was she was, she was doing. So she was, she was good about doing, doing the core work and doing the stretching and, and paying close attention to little injuries or getting massage or doing therapies that we need to, to maintain and keep her body going. You know, now that she's not racing professionally anymore and she's got a lot of other things going on in her life, she'll still do these big rides, but then, you know, comes home and just jumps straight into whatever else was going on. And then, you know, because of that, we'll often have little little injuries flare up or little um, little quirks in the system, so to speak, that uh, you know it's left unchecked and aren't aren't um, 
are maintained properly can can cause a lot of problems. So I think it's it's important to um when you ask a lot of your body, you gotta give a lot to your body back in return and as far as time is concerned, um that's something you have to factor in your your schedule. Let's get back to Menachem and wrap things up. Menachem, you've got one minute, you're on the clock. Boil everything that we've talked about today down into a minute for for those out there, take homes. Number one is bands, kettlebells, bodyweight yoga. Yes. Find what works for you. Number two, it's consistency. You are what you do for two weeks. Number three, it's connective tissue adapting. So when you're on the bike, get a bike fit twice or three times a year. Usually the way it works, you pay for a big bike fit up front, and then it's a small adjustment as you go through the season. Number four, work on your breathing. Breathing and posture are correct, uh, connected and can be corrective exercises in and of themselves. And number five, as Trevor pointed out, you know, as Ben Day had, had said to him at some point, if I, if I got that correct, cut your ride short five to 10 minutes and do a little bit of strength training. We gave you six, seven exercises you can do easily. No equipment needed. You just need a floor, which hopefully you have. Otherwise you're falling and falling and falling <laughs> <laughs> and you're the worst cyclist ever. Do the exercises. That's one of the reasons I love winter trainer rides is you don't have to have those 20 minutes of getting ready and getting undressed. You get off the trainer and you just use a kettlebell or whatever it is you need. And the last thing is everybody is different. Just because an exercise or a series of exercises in a certain way work for one person does not mean they're going to work for you. Use your brain. If you're not sure, hire somebody. There are tons and tons of great strength coaches out there that if you're forthright and honest with them, hey, you know what? I'm not going to be able to pay you for months and months and months of individual training sessions, but can you do a session with me and give me some feedback on form and a basic uh, routine? We'll be more than happy to help you. You took all the good points, but Trevor, do you have anything else to add to that? So the one thing I'm going to add to that, which you alluded to before, and we, we really saw this when you were describing these exercises, is... Take the time to learn to do these exercises right. We are talking about functional fitness. That means proper muscle firing patterns. If you are doing an exercise with improper form, you are teaching poor firing patterns. You are accomplishing the exact opposite of what you want to accomplish. So it's better. We had, I think it was a Dr. Pruitt who said this. Somebody was on the show not all that long ago who said, you are better off learning five, six exercises, but learning them well, learning how to do them with proper motion so that you teach the correct muscle firing patterns. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that I can add to this is uh, not to take your good health and your good fitness and your good form and your injury-free athletic experiences for granted. And uh, don't think that just because when you're you're 25 or 35 that, and everything's fine and you haven't got any pains that that's going to last forever. If you uh, just continue to do what you're doing, uh, adding in these things is something that I feel is a natural progression. And probably both of you would say the earlier, the better don't wait until you're 40. Don't wait until you feel like maybe something's around the corner in terms of an injury or something like that. This is not just injury prevention. After all, it's about performance too. So many things uh, apply to those of you who are 21, 22. You pay for it later, but you do pay for it. Prevent it now. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you only understood that sooner, it's fun. It's all fun and games until you have that first big thing. And then uh, I can yep. tell you again today, being stuck in bed, <laughs> it's, it sucks, man. <laughs> 
That was another fabulous episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. Thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Menachem Brody, Brent Bookwalter, Joe Dombrowski, and Jess Elliott, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back.